Comfort for Troubled Hearts from John chapter 14 verses 1 to 7. So in our series in the Gospel of John, we are in the upper room where Jesus continues to deliver his words of farewell to his now 11 disciples. These are the final hours, the final hours before he is to be arrested and taken to be tried and to be crucified. He has just, in in chapter 13, given an example of how they are to serve each other, how they are to love each other and how much he loved them. He predicted the betrayal of Judas Iscariot and the denial of Simon Peter. He has also told them that he is leaving them and they cannot come. So in that sense, it's not surprising that his next words, which we find in chapter 14, it's how the chapter starts, are words of comfort. In these words, we as his followers, as believers in Jesus Christ, will also find comfort for our troubled hearts in the troubled times in which we live. So what do these words tell us? How is Jesus comforting, encouraging, building up his disciples and what is he saying through them to us? Well, first of all, trusting his words, verse 1. Trusting his words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is one of the well-known, very well-known verses in the New Testament, isn't it? Often quoted in times of distress and loss. Let's recall the setting where it is actually Jesus who is the one who is going to be tortured. He is the one that's going to be crucified. He is the one that is going to be betrayed by his own. And the Bible tells us that he is deeply troubled in spirit because of this. So when it, it, it should have actually been the disciples who are encouraging and supporting Jesus. As he, as we know that when he went to pray in Gethsemane, guess why he took some of his disciples with him so they could, they could pray with him and encourage him and be with him in this difficult hour. So they're the ones that's supposed to be encouraging him. And, and, but all they can think of at the moment is that they, they don't know what's going on. It's all come about and, and they're, they're troubled for their loss. If I was Jesus, I would be saying to them, fellas, can we just get a little perspective here? Yet it is up to Jesus to encourage them. It sort of reminds me of of a mother who is very ill, maybe even a terminal illness, yet has to wake up in the middle of the night to help 
her little child to even sleep with her little child because he has a tummy ache and he's not feeling well. And no wonder that Jesus actually addresses his disciples as little children, isn't it? They're so innocent in this regard. And when Jesus says, believe in God, you believe in God, believe also in me, he is linking himself directly with God. Every Jew from a very early age was taught to trust God. So for Jesus to say this, uh, it, it, it could either be taken as, as a sublime or a totally ridiculous, over-the-top statement. Who do you think you are? For the believer, there is no middle ground as it is the biggest claim to make. Jesus is either a liar, it's the old Josh McDowell formula, isn't it? Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is God, who he rightly claims to be. Back to the disciples, they still can't see the need for Jesus to depart, to depart and then on, on his way to, to glory, his return to glory. They, they wallow in their misery, fearing that they, they're about to be abandoned by their master. They, they probably needed further instruction and explanations of the dramatic events about to take place. So even if they remain unable to absorb all the details till after this weekend has passed, his words are are, are there to provide some immediate relief because of where they're at. But certainly after this weekend, this weekend and after his ascension to heaven, these words will come into their own, won't they? They're going to go through Jesus' words over and over and over again. And those early followers, those, those early Christians, would go through a lot worse than just sadness of separation. They would go through a lot worse, the persecution and, and, and giving their life because of their faith in Jesus. And it was their very faith based on these words, on, on, on his words, which reinforced their belief and to trust in Jesus that enabled them not to give in to the enemy, but to overcome. And as Christians today, the only way that we are able to find relief for our troubled hearts is because of the events of Calvary. Now we might find temporary inspiration in the examples of those who, those early Christians who walked into the Colosseums and uh, who were burned at the stake and, and the courage, they did not surrender. They willingly gave their life and testified for Christ even to the point of death. 
Now, we might find inspiration in their courage. But inspiration is not going to be enough, is it? Those early Christians had their faith anchored firmly in the redemptive purposes of the cross. It was God who gave them strength to overcome. It wasn't just the example. It was supernatural power in them that made their lives shine in the midst of the the darkness of the times. Otherwise, nothing else makes sense. Trusting his words. Do we trust his words? Like they did. Secondly, Jesus is gone to prepare a place for his followers. Verse 2, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told I would have told you that. If that were not so, would I have told you that that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. These words are truly comforting and and, uh, and it brings up all sorts of ideas and speculations about what it's going to be like. If you are into the heavenly real estate market, then uh, you will perhaps like the King James Version, uh, version a, a little better because it promises many mansions rather than just many rooms that the NIV has. Now, the word used here is an extremely rare one and it only appears in, this, in the new, whole New Testament again in this chapter in verse 23. And there he declares that the Father and the Son by means of the Holy Spirit, will make their home in the heart of the believer. Now, value in real estate is only derived from what someone is prepared to pay for it, right? What price did Jesus pay for you? So even though you might not feel like an expensive waterfront, you are actually worth much more. And it is because of what Jesus did to purchase you, to redeem you, and the fact that God has made a home for you, that's the reason why we we praise Him, why we, we worship Him. So, an old song used to sing that uh, we used to sing is uh, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Uh, Elvis sung it in 1961, even though the song was written in 1947. Um, so I'm going to sing the first verse and I want you to join us in the chorus, all right? Now it's been translated in many songs. I learned this song first in Spanish, all right? 
Okay. I'm satisfied with just the cottage below. A little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver line. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we will never move on. But walk on streets that are pure as gold. All together. Oh, often tempted, tormented and tested. And like the prophet, my pillars are stone. And though I find here no permanent dwelling, I know he'll give me a mansion my own. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday Just over the hilltop In that bright land We'll never grow old And someday yonder We will never more wander But walk on streets That are pure as gold Yeah! <laughs> Thank you, Jelena. That's right. Now, I think, however beautiful that song is, and I know that it might even be in your, um, some of you have already written your funeral service. Um, and uh, the, the, the songs that are to be played there. I think we should probably talk down just a little bit the talk of mansions in heaven. 
For example, gold is valuable on earth, but not in heaven. In heaven, in fact, it has the same price as asphalt, road base. Yes, I know, that, I know what you're going to say, but the point in Revelation is its beauty and its purity. Uh, my earthly desires for a gold one that's silver lined will willingly surrender to whatever the sun has prepared for me. I don't deserve the little silver and the little gold that I have here. None of it. And I certainly don't deserve anything in heaven. And the the amazing inheritance comes as part of the adoption papers signed by blood and given to me by my Heavenly Father. So, I don't know what the image of a mansion looks like. The thing is, I want to be where God is. Don't we? Everything will simply dissipate into insignificance when we are are Saviour. And that's true. Now, even the most knowledgeable of theologians knows little of that marvellous place the Bible calls heaven. And Jesus didn't give us uh, detailed descriptions, but he did promise his followers this eternal home to be with him. And and, and I don't think the disciples were too concerned at this point uh, with a wealthy material inheritance they are actually upset at the prospect of losing Jesus. Their assurance would come in the, in the, in the promise of being reunited, reunited again with their master, with Jesus. And I think in the same way we are to concentrate on being with our Lord, being with fellow believers, with family, rather than getting lost in the mansions over the hilltop. So I don't want to burst your sentimental balloon here, but we just got to get things in order. Now for Jesus, his return to the Father's house is not so he can have some, you know, time alone for a while. It is with the purpose of preparing a place for his followers. And if all this was simply a fanciful fairy tale, he would have told them. God cannot lie. God keeps his promises. And when thoughts come that we feel abandoned, that nobody cares, we should remember this promise that our permanent home will be in the very presence of God our Father. This, this promise is what will give stability in our faith. 
we need to hold the long-range view, the pilgrim heading towards his heavenly home, through the struggles, through the difficulties. This is not our home. Heaven is. In the meantime, let us not abrogate our responsibilities as Christians because it is possible for some to want to retreat to a safe space, no pun intended, to become so detached, so heavily minded yet morally and socially useless and ineffective. At the same time, we are not to be social justice warriors where the goals of the kingdom are political, economic and social reform. We want to obey our Lord who told us to go and we want others to join us in that and therefore to share the good news, the good news to make disciples throughout the world. The kingdom of God is not of this world. And even if every possible person on this planet living here now, even if the seven and a half billion people were to become Christians, Christ followers, it would still not be heaven, not by a long shot. The ultimate goal, therefore, is not the transformation of society, as desirable as that may be. We can speak, just as I mentioned before. We can protest. We can make our views known to legislators and governors and those in power. We need to shine the light in the midst of this darkness. But the ultimate goal is not the transformation of society. The ultimate goal is pure worship and the unrestricted presence of God. I keep going back to that. Now there is one more issue raised by this verse and these words are spoken by the very one who spoke the universe into being in six days. So what is Jesus actually preparing that has already taken him 2,000 years? Why is it taking him so long? Well, Jesus is not saying, in effect, I'm returning to my father's house so that after I get there, I'll be able to get the place ready for you. But rather, I'm returning to my father's house in order that this very return, this redemptive journey, may be the means of preparing the place. I like what Augustine said all those years ago. He said, he's in a, but he's in a certain sense preparing the dwellings by preparing for them the dwellers. You get that? He's making us fit for heaven in the meantime. Thirdly, Jesus is coming back for his own, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, there's been different interpretations of this verse. It's been debated. 
No, Jesus is coming back. He's not referring to his post-resurrection appearance and he didn't take any of his disciples with him at his ascension. That didn't happen. Others have said that Jesus promised to come back for his disciples when they die. And they died at different times, so every time they died, Jesus will come back and take them to be with him. And I suppose there is some support for that. So when some of the, the early martyrs gave their life and subsequent martyrs, you know, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen said that. There is in a sense that we surrender our spirit into the hands of God. And, and there, is, there is comfort as we read passages such as this when I'm doing a funeral, when I'm trying to comfort the bereaved. As the intention of these words is to offer comfort to believers when we're experiencing loss, deep loss. But the ultimate fulfilment of these words are found in his second coming when he returns. Jesus will return to gather his own and take them to be with him. Now, okay, well that's that's a great doctrinal statement, Paul, but I want you to go a little bit deeper with me and just take note of how intensely personal in nature this promise is. Even as, even as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords reigns over all of creation, the fact that he's coming back, he's coming back, his return and, and the gathering of the saints, he is not delegating that work to the, to the angels or the archangels. This is personal. He says, I am going there to prepare a place for you And I will come back, I will personally come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. Do you get that? Uh, Harry, can you pick up Paul? He's just about to cark it, mate. So can you just hang around a little bit and, uh, you know, just just wait there because, yeah, he's about to go. So, yeah, just, yeah, just bring him home, will you? Is that what he's like? Is he going to send a chauffeur? See, far from being abandoned, the disciples and, and us need to accept the fact that his departure is, is a necessary part of the preparation to eventually join him when he comes back. We are not losing Jesus. In fact, gaining him. Gaining him. This is what the disciples needed to come to the truth. Now the supreme hope of the church has always been the return of Jesus Christ. Yes, it is also the end to history as we know it and the end to the moral and the moral darkness, the chaos and depravity that we are currently witnessing 
all around us. But in all of this, the ultimate goal for the believer is to be with Christ. Because you see, even the the consummation itself would be empty if Jesus were not there. If he wasn't involved in any way, shape or form. Now let's suppose, best way I can put it is, let's suppose you have an old schoolmate. You go back to primary and, and high school years. He is now a very successful businessman and after many years he wants to catch up on old times with you. Plans are made. He sends his plane to pick you up and just as you're about to land on his private plane, he sends a message to you saying that something has come up and he won't have time for you. But he says, he says, but you have access to his staff, to his mansion, and you can stay in, in, in his place for as long as you want. Now, I don't know about you, but you, you'd have sort of these bittersweet feelings, won't you? I want, for you, it really wasn't about the mansion or the plane ride, as good as that was. It was about spending time with a childhood friend, catching up on old times and, and see if the, the friendship can move forward to get closer together after the last years. The psalmist asks this in Psalm 73 verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? Jesus is the reason we want to be there, be there in the presence of the Father. I don't care too much about the golden streets. I don't care about the, the, the mansion, the waterfront, the, as beautiful and amazing as it would be. I want to be in the presence of God. I don't want any more restricted access to my Father as it is now that I... Yes, I can come before him now, but I want to see him face to face. I do that by faith now. Then it will be reality. The fulfilment. That is what I want. Because you see, Jesus will be the perfect host. Whom have I in heaven but you? We just want to be where God is. Lastly, and Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Verses 4 to 7. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying something like this. By now, from all that I have told you these past three years, 
you should know that the, the way to my father's house is for me both the way of shame and crucifixion and the way of glory and resurrection. I'm going to my father and I'm going via the cross. There are no shortcuts. You should know all this by now. I've said it often enough. However, there are still some questions troubling the disciples. And I'm sure all of them in a roundabout way had the same query, the same question, but it is up to Thomas to ask it. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, Thomas is, is fairly straightforward. He displayed courage in chapter 11 when he was willing to go to Jerusalem to let us all go and die with Jesus. He could also be very blunt. You know, later on in the post-resurrection appearance, he's the one that says, you know, unless I put my finger in his hand, I won't believe. I won't. He just says it like it is. He's pretty blunt. He won't simply nod when he doesn't understand something. So what he says in effect is this. It's all right for you to say you're going to the Father, but we don't know the way to the Father. And then this question in God's providence gives way to one of the most majestic declarations in all of Scripture, isn't it? He shows them that the way they must travel is not by giving them a map, a Gregory's, you remember the Gregory's or Google Maps, or to post signs along the road. He points to himself. No sane person in all of human history has spoken like this. And and, and what's more, the events about to unfold would seriously bring into question this declaration. I am the way spoken by one who is about to be crucified. What? Is that the way, really? I am the truth spoken by someone who will be convicted by lying witnesses. I am the life spoken by the very one whose corpse will be beaten to a pulp and then sealed in a tomb. How is that life? This, brothers and sisters, is the paradox of our salvation, isn't it? Like John the Baptist, many would have serious doubts based on this. You know, John the Baptist asked in prison, are you sure you're the one? Or should we wait for somebody else who perhaps fits the bill a little bit better? No, Jesus is not simply a way amongst many. He is the way. In fact, in the book of Acts, the early Christians were described as followers of the way. He is not simply another version of truth. He is eternally the truth incarnate. 
He is not a life. He is life itself. He is not some self-help guru who has come to give advice on living, some philosopher. He is the creator, the sustainer, the giver of life itself. That is why he told Martha earlier in the Gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. Who speaks like that? Except God. In the 15th century, Thomas Kempis, another Thomas, Thomas Kempis, put it this way, he says, Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. Only a few centuries later, after Thomas Kempis, some 400 years later, in 19th century Russia, started an atheistic philosophical view called nihilism. Nihilism, nihilo is the uh, Latin word for nothing. Um, creatio ex nihilo is the expression when we say God created out of nothing. Right? So nihilism is basically the philosophy of nothing, nothingness. It argues that life is without objective meaning, purpose or intrinsic value. In our day, in our day, now, 21st century, we are seeing a revival in nihilism, in nothingness. We witness the confirmation of the culture of death and nothingness and nihilism here in Australia. This law, the upper house, that even babies who survive abortion can be killed, it's just, what? We don't even treat animals that way. Society without God is utterly doomed to self-destruction. Thomas Kempis was right. Without the life, there is no living. Finally, as followers of Jesus, Christians for two millennia have been deeply involved in life because it is sacred. We have fought for the defenceless ones. We have educated. We have created orphanages, hospitals. We have done what no one else was prepared to do. Even in Roman times when babies were abandoned, they used to just, what's called exposure, I think, they used to just, babies they didn't want, they would just leave them outside to die. And then the Christians, the early Christians would go and gather them, these abandoned babies, and bring them up as their own. Amazing. Life is sacred. We need to love life. We want to see good days. 
We need to come back to God. And if you want to go to the Father, you have to go through the only avenue that He has provided, and that is His Son. There is no other way. Thank God He has provided at least a way, the way, even when He didn't have to. He didn't have to do it. By His grace, we are redeemed. In His grace, we are sustained. And by His grace, we find comfort for our troubled souls. Amen.